Greetings and welcome to Intersections, where our aspiration is to dissolve the boundaries of East and West, of inner and outer, profit and purpose, science and spirituality, any boundaries that limit us from exploring and advancing to our full potential, individually and collectively. Today, we have the pleasure of having in our midst Julie lithcott Hames. She is a renowned speaker and a best-selling author, deeply invested in humanity and interested in what gets in our way. Her work encompasses writing and speaking, teaching, mentoring, and activism. She is the former dean of freshmen and undergraduate advising at Stanford University. She has written the New York Times bestseller, How to Raise an Adult, which gave rise to her widely popular TED Talk that has over 2.5 million views on the same topic. It is about how to break free of the over-parenting trap and prepare your child for success. She has since gone on to write Real American, a memoir that was critically acclaimed for the manner in which it illustrates her experience as a black and biracial person in white spaces. Um, and then a third book is called Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. And it's been called a groundbreakingly frank guide to approaching and advancing into adulthood. Let me start us off with a quote from Julie. She says, imagine one single day on planet Earth where every human alive expressed only love to themselves and to all others. We would make a quantum leap forward in our existence. Let us invite Julie into our midst. Julie, welcome to Intersections. Hitendra, thank you so much for having me. Real pleasure. You, in some ways, both in your personal journey and in the work that you do, really embody, you know, the whole essence of what this um, podcast is meant to be. I mean, intersections, you know, it's about helping dissolve boundaries and open people up to their fullest potential, um, allow them to be not challenged or constrained in any way by the boxes, you know, that we had imposed, you know, on society for better and for worse, you know, in, in the past. So uh, I'm just so much looking forward to this conversation. I appreciate that. I think I came into this world being outside the box. My parents are an interracial couple. And in the years in which they dared to fall in love, which was the 1960s, it was literally illegal for them to be married in many places. And yet they oh, wow. decided to you know, forge ahead with, with love and with marriage and creating a child me. And this child that I was arrived in a world knowing that I didn't fit the classification scheme that humans had put together. Biracial, multiracial was such an unusual thing in 1967 when I was born. I think my tiny self knew there was something wrong with these boxes because they excluded me. And I think it has given me over the course of these 54 years a lot of compassion for humans who find themselves outside the box, trying to contend with which box, um, trying to craft a self that that feels authentic and right um, when our society is so hell bent on telling us who we ought to be or who we are. Yeah, I mean, what I love is that you have taken that personal, you know, experience. Uh, translated into this compassion that you're talking about for others, you know, on their own journey, but then also systematize it into a certain, 
you know, a set of inspirational ideas and, and uh, you know, pathways and structures to help support, you know, others, you know, to, yeah, just um, fathom and over time unpack and direct their lives in, in a much more um, illuminated way than what we in the past were able to do for people. So that's obviously the conversation that we will have in the next few minutes, especially in the context of your, your, your recent book, you know, one of a few that you have, uh, you know, published over the years. This one is called Your Turn how to be an adult. And so we, we're going to talk about that. There you go. <laughs> and, and I want to start by just making an observation. What drew me to uh, the fold of America uh, at the age of about you know, 21 after college was the uh, lure of America's higher education. Uh, you know, and I've been blessed over the years to spend time on the campuses at Yale and MIT and then you know, more recently now teaching at Columbia. And uh, you yourself have a very storied history with regard to the top Ivy League institutions like Stanford and Harvard that you've been a part of both as a student and then over time even um, as a dean of uh, you know freshman and undergraduate advising and um, you know I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are one thing I've noticed over the years is that I, I realized that while these institutions drew me you know and, and they continue to have you know in, in them you know so much of an you know allure that there's so much about it which when we look at higher education across the world one can really feel proud about what you know unique liberal arts experiences we've created in america at the same time i found that the students here were not necessarily happier and have to be honest, it's not that they were necessarily nicer people than the ones you just find when you're just taking a walk on down the street. Am I wrong? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what a beautiful observation. First, the United States does higher education well. It is one of the things we offer. Uh, the world is a panoply of opportunities in higher education. We are not a country where there are simply two or three places you can feel good about attending uh, or 10 or 20. We are a place with thousands of, of options, all of which are very different from one another. And so the United States does do higher education well. And that's, I think, a, a gift we offer the world and people come from the world here in order to uh, participate and obtain that opportunity. Yes, But we've gotten really um, enamored of higher education as a brand. Um, so uh, the notion that some are so much better than the others that we need to attach them to us so that we are more worthy as a human, like a college is the equivalent of a fancy designer set of clothing or the, the right soda to drink or the right car. Like I'm a better person because I'm driving this vehicle. Well, no, you're not. And is that vehicle really by all objective measures, better than all the others? No, it has some great features and facets, but it's missing some things. Case in point, the schools you've just mentioned, MIT, Yale, Columbia, Stanford, Harvard, um, places you and I have been affiliated with, tend not to offer the highest quality undergraduate education because they are world-class universities. And the imperative at a world-class university or what makes a university world-class is that the faculty are consistently, constantly undergoing research. They are uh, developing scholarship based on the new knowledge they create, which is important and necessary for the advancement of our civilization, understanding, problem-solving, solution generation. But it's hard to also make time to teach and mentor the undergraduates on a campus where uh, the production of research and scholarship is the primary imperative. And so it is 
rarely the case that one is an undergraduate in those places and consistently class over class, semester over semester has access to great teaching and quality time spent in a mentoring relationship with these amazing faculty. You're more likely to find that at the less well-known schools. And this is just one example of how the allure of certain brand name experiences really obfuscates what actually matters when you're an undergraduate, to be mentored, to be cared about, and thoughtfully listened to and engaged with is the kind of um, experience that a big Gallup poll survey shows is what leads to success in life. If you were mentored in college, regardless of how fancy the brand name of the college was, you are likely to report later in life that you personally feel that you are a success. Wow. I mean, that just throws the whole college ranking thing out of, out of whack. Um, and to your point about, are they nicer? I think lately, and by that, I mean the last 20, 30 years since I've been paying attention, at least this drive toward having the brand name college experience um, means that childhood is this utilitarian time of life in furtherance of meeting some very rigid academic admission standards. And I think that does take a toll on a young person. I think it makes them grade grubbers. I think it makes them attention seekers. I think it makes them perfectionists. I think it disassociates them from their own spirit and soul, which might be yearning to study this, that, or the other, which society, air quotes, parents, whomever doesn't feel is worthwhile or justified or won't get them into the right place. So you have these highly accomplished young, many of whom are quite unfamiliar with their own self. Why am I here? What am I good at? What would I do if nobody was judging me? And so therefore, maybe some of them aren't the kindest people. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the, the, like you, I, I, I share a certain love and appreciation for these institutions. And uh, I, I know that you and I are both coming from that place, right? We, we are recognizing and honoring what is really good in them. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, and the thing, what not nice, I mean, you know, they're wonderful people here. And at the same time, it's just, a, to me, it's just a question about like, if you are, you know, a claimant to the, you know, idea that you rank higher than some other school, yeah. then should you not also therefore then be producing better human beings, right? right. Not just necessarily better intellects, but better human beings. Absolutely. I would hope that that would be the measure. And I think each school that we've referenced and plenty others would say, no, that's embedded in our mission. We are trying to make better human beings. We are trying to um, take humans who have a lot of promise and potential and help them level up so that they can be better humans and better serve the world. But this is where I think the ideals, whether expressed in Latin or English or some other language in a school's motto or a credo, um, don't necessarily align with what's the actual output. When we see that so many undergraduates, for example, seem to think that the only acceptable pursuits in life are the business world, medicine, law, engineering or entrepreneurship, we have to ask ourselves, when did we become places that uh, steered kids, particularly to Wall Street? Why, why is that what the best and brightest seem to feel is really the, the ultimate goal? Why aren't they uh, pursuing the helping professions? Why aren't they uh, trying to improve quality of life for those who have less um, you know, it used to be that the people who survey incoming freshmen year over year now for probably five decades produce all this data on what is it that students say a college 
degree is for. And in the seventies, they said, um, you know, to improve my character, you know, to help me make the world a better place. And now they're saying it's about personal success, getting ahead, you know, getting the right job, um, which just saddens me. You're speaking to themes that uh, you evoke so well in your book. Um, you know, I'm looking at, um, a, you know, a little short sentence I read, which I really liked. You said character matters big time. <laughs> it does. You know, and I think in today's childhood here, at least I live in Silicon Valley, um, as you know, but for my for your listeners to know, I live in Silicon Valley and the students here are told what they have to do academically, the grades they need to get, the scores they need to get on the test, try to be uh, taking those tests over and over again to get to this sort of high level of achievement. But I don't know that there's a single class offered in the public school district that my kids went to that is on the development of character. And what matters more than anything, Hitendra, what what matters more than character? I don't think people even know what character is. I see character as the way in which we show up with other humans. Why does that matter? Because human beings are primates. We're a social species. We are interdependent. We need one another to get our own needs met. We also want to reciprocate and help others get their needs met. That's how we've evolved to this place and how we show up in terms of our behavior and actions and reactions, ways of being with other humans is the measure of our worth. I do think it is what people will say about us when we leave the room. It is what people will say about us in our eulogy when we've died. You know, how did others feel around us? Did they feel safe? Did they feel seen, supported, heard, respected? Did they feel they were treated with dignity and kindness? That's the kind of character we all need to be giving off. And of course, Hitendra, you know, if the world's population was able to kind of revolve around this truth, if we could all for one day or one week or the month of April commit that our character, how we behave toward one another was going to be what we cared about and sought to grow around more than anything, you know that our world would begin to transform into a healthier, more full, more fair, more just place of ease. Oh, I, I just love that. I like thought experiments, you know, just uh, giving ourselves the, you know, space and freedom to just like think about something and visualize it in the most tangible way, even if it's not something we can physically, you know, express in the moment. And, and that's such a beautiful thought experiment that you just shared. And my sense is that if we actually were able to coordinate a movement across the world where we told people just for one day, just for one day, you know, be this most loving version of you, right? The transformation that it will, you know, bring in part will come from how we start seeing others respond to us, you know, yeah. and in part it will come from how we get more in touch with our own soul, right? right? And so if I were to maybe throw in that one additional stakeholder in that mix of how you show up, you know, with others is how you show up with your own self. And I wonder what you think about this, but I sometimes I, I you know, feel like, okay, at the moment that we die, uh, yes, there is the, um, the uh, what's going to be written on our tombstone and what's going to be our obituary and what are people going to say about us. But I also wonder if at that moment, when everything is being stripped away from us, you know, all these identities from the outside, all these associations and relationships and the world is just like fading into the background, 
if it's not the case that in that moment we'll just have this mirror and we will be just looking at our own selves and in that moment we will we, we will be you know kind of like in some ways um telling our own self like how do we feel about our life uh, and perhaps all of these attachments and ego and all those get stripped aside yeah. and the purity of our voice within in that moment will you know either either you know smile at like a life well lived or feel a little bit pained at certain opportunities that were missed Hitendra, I just need to pause and say thank you for inviting me to be in this conversation with you because I am finding it so nourishing simply to listen to your beautiful questions. So I'm filled with gratitude right now and I want to share that. Um, I'm sharing it authentically. I'm also noticing it's important to share this for listeners to know that in the moments when we are just filled with gratitude, we shouldn't fail to notice we should pause and acknowledge um, that is part of to be deeply human with one another. Well, that's so sweet. Thank oh you. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm feeling I, the same way. And I found myself as you articulated that, you know, frame of what it might be like for each of us as we die. And you said, will it be a smile that we give ourselves or a bit of regret, a bit of pain? You know, my, as you were articulating that my head was going to, will it be a familiar feeling? Will we feel on our deathbed? I know myself. I have been in tune and in touch with this self in my effort to grow it and heal it and help it become ever more able to be present alongside other humans in a manner that is loving and kind. And will we recognize the self or will we, in fact, in that moment of great clarity that may come upon death, have regrets. I think what I'm trying to say is, yes, I find these uh, two things you you labeled, the relationship with others, the relationship with the self, to be incredibly reciprocal, to be hand in glove, yin yang, reciprocal. Um, and I know this because I have worked on and continue to work on and will always work on, where do I want to grow? not to be more important or have more money or have a different title, but within my being, where are my rough edges? Where are the ways in which I am unpleasant? Where are the times I am impatient? What is that about? You know, I, I want to work on those things, both to calm and quiet myself so that I can feel greater ease within this body, mind and spirit thing that I inhabit, but also knowing that when I am, in that place of ease, when I'm not combating some insecurity within me that's making me afraid or angry, then I can show up with other humans and be more of what they need. I can listen better. I can be more helpful. It's problem solving comes more easily. You know, I can, I can activate the things in me that I want to offer others because I am not encumbered, burdened by my own self. Ah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm almost hearing you say that, um, there's a, a level of almost like freedom yeah. that you start to attain to be, you know, be your best self, be your truest self. Once you've, um, you know, successfully uh, addressed what in one of your stories you shared, Irshad, you know, one of the subject matters in your book, uh, you know, a very inspiring lady uh, who uh, went uh, down a beautiful path of personal transformation. And she talks of it as a, an, a civil war that is going on within you, isn't it? 
Yeah, Irshad Manji, who's um, the child of refugees from Uganda when Idi Amin came and said, you know, if you're not native Ugandan, you don't belong here. And they fled to Canada and she's Muslim and she's queer and she had to fight that civil war within her. She also was raised in a home with a very physically abusive father and there was a lot of fear in the home and she really had to reckon with a lot of things um, because she was being taught to respect her elders, including her father, and yet her father was violent. How was she supposed to square that? She was being taught um, to love and respect the teachings of Islam, and yet she was told that to be Muslim meant you couldn't be queer, and yet she knew she was. And so she spent much of her young adulthood reckoning with these um, seemingly um, irreconcilable differences and became this person who's written this beautiful book, which I'll show, Don't Label Me, an incredible conversation for divided times. She is somebody who is so masterfully reckoned with the dualities within her or the paradoxes that she's someone who is able to show up in practice um, in her work and teach us how to uh, communicate, cooperate, um, find common ground from places that originate as being quite uh, differentiated and different, right? So she's she's able to work with people around these topics around which we can't uh, seem to agree and figure out, well, you know, are there ways in which we can find our way toward each other and be less polarized? So I think her work is so essential in this moment. And um, I'm honored that she agreed to let me tell a little bit of her origin story in this new book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, in which I'm trying to help other young humans reconcile what they know to be true about themselves and with the messages the world is telling them about what matters and what doesn't. So I really found Irshad's origin story, as you've said, to be really quite inspiring. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I'm just moved to share uh, as a sidelight uh, another story from the Idi Amin time that a student of mine shared in, in my class. One of the things we do in my class is um, just have, um, you know, these personal journeys that are shared by, you know, every participant. And so this student's story was that uh, she talked about a mother as uh, being a little child during the time when the Idi Amin revolution happened. And they were also having to be forced to, you know, kind of leave the country at that time. But she said that my mother, she was growing up, she was a Hindu lady, you know, an Indian immigrant in uh, Uganda. And she had a Muslim friend that she would go over to the home of. And there they would be like made to learn the Quran. So she said, I learned verses of the Quran just because I was playing around with my friend and I happened to be there when that was happening. You know, it's just like what's happening. And this is, this is her mother, right? And then that moment happens and they have to leave Uganda. But actually... It was um, a kind of a, a bloody outcome for them in a sense, because as they were leaving, the Ugandan forces actually uh, apprehended them. Uh, her parents kind of, you know, protested in some ways and uh, her parents were shot. Oh. And then she was in some kind of a, you know, uh, makeshift camp, you know, for yeah. a period of time that she and her brother, little kids. Yeah. And she said that, I'm um, oh, sorry, the, the mother, right? The mother yeah. and, and her brother, the little kids. Yeah. And she said that these neighbors of ours, you know, whose kids, you know, this mother had been playing with, um, they, they happened to pass by that camp and they saw her inside. And so they go over to the, to the camp guards and they say, uh, that's actually, you know, those are my children, you know, please, please let them out. Yeah. And, and they said, well, you know, they'll have to prove that they're, they're, they're Muslim, <laughs> you know, because they apparently I think that, that was his faith at that time. <laughs> so, uh, so she recited those verses from, you oh know, God. the Quran that she happened to have just playfully just learned. 
Oh my that, goodness. Uh, that allowed them to get it, you know, to escape from there and ultimately make their way in safe passage to London with oh. the rest of her family. And you know, anyway, that's a mother's survival story. And uh, the reason I, I find that very powerful is it's almost like makes me feel as though there's some intelligence in the universe yeah. that, you know, knows the arc of a life, you know, uh, <laughs> going forward and creates these experiences for us in order to kind of shape that path in a way where if we will tune in, tune in to these experiences and what they really represent for us, perhaps we'll be in a position to uh, do most remarkable things with even what may have been casual moments or adverse moments or whatever it is that life has, you know, dealt to us as cards, right? Because it's just preparing us for some great game in the future. I don't know. What, what, what do you think of that? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I'm just moved by that story. And thank you for sharing it, Hitendra. What a compelling story to illustrate your point that maybe the universe is sort of seeing the long arc and setting up these moments for us if we can just tune into them. And I want to put a pin in that and come back to that. And I will. I want to say the other reaction I'm having is some people will turn that into everything happens for a reason. And when they say that, I feel that it's such a slap in the face for those who are born very poor, born lacking food, shelter, safety, decent parenting, you know, all of the ways in which children can arrive in the world lacking so much. And I, I hate to think that the universe is okay with that. You know, I, I hate to think that in the grand design, to the extent there is one, that it's accepted that, you know, there's going to be a 10% failure rate or a 25% failure rate or whatever. I'm no. not okay with that. If there is no. a grand design, if it's science, if it's the universe, if it's God, if it's spirit, if it's energy or what have you, I hope that those designers are very much committed to the thriving of all of us. Yes. And right to right. So I, I need for that to be the case. For example, when, uh, the latest or one of the most recent Ebola outbreaks happened on the continent of Africa and an American doctor was there treating folks. I can't remember which country it was, mm -hmm. offhand, but right. he caught Ebola. He was airlifted out to an American hospital that gave him this experimental treatment. And, you know, he barely survived, but did. And then he had this press conference and he thanked God for saving him. And mm -hmm. I just thought, what is wrong with you? Are you saying God, you know, chose not to save all those Africans, you know, are yeah. you calling God the American men medical system that devised this manner of healthcare for you? Like how arrogant, mm -hmm. you know, I appreciate that he wanted to offer gratitude somewhere, but let us never offer gratitude in a way that says I was chosen over the rest of these poor souls. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think what the variable you're offering for me at least is, is I try to square these things. Right. Cause I very much have had these, experiencing nothing, nothing as moving and dramatic as that story out of Uganda. But those moments where I'm like, yeah, this was meant to have, this feels like such an improbable connection mm -hmm. that it's, it, it has to be that there's something noticing that these two nodes should intersect, right? I've had those experiences and they bring yeah, me yeah. wonder and awe. And I think the language you used was to tune into them. Yeah. I think we have to be humans who are on the, look out for or just infuse with awareness of the fact that those kinds of connections are possible all the time and we must be open to them and we must not fail to notice them and acknowledge no. gratitude for them when they do.
There's a beloved Indian poet, uh, you know, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature, um, India's Poet Laureate. He's called Rabindranath Tagore. And he has yep. a poem I really, really, really like. And there's a line from that poem that I'm reminded of as I hear you speak. In this poem, he's envisioning a certain utopia. You know, what would that utopia look like? And he's trying to invoke, you know, a higher power to lead humanity towards that utopia. And so he's describing that utopia. And then he says, like, you know, into that heaven of freedom, my father, let, you know, let my country awake, let my people awake, let, let the world awake. And so anyway, but that line that you're reminding me of in how you speak, you know, is the line where he says, where words come out from the depths of truth. Uh, and I really appreciate and value the conversation we are having because I can see uh, not just the articulate in very thoughtful and nuanced way that you think these issues through, Julie, but just like the depth from where they come out. It's, it's just so beautiful to hear you express and um, think these and, things through for us. And in mentioning, thank you for that compliment or that noticing of what I might bring, you have evoked the memory of my beloved father who passed away 26 years ago, um, long ago, half a lifetime for me ago, daddy died. But daddy, my African-American father born in 1918 would quote Rabindranath Tagore. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. And of all Amazing. the books that I have here in my office, I do not wow. have a volume of Rabindranath Tagore. And because you have mentioned him and because you're evoking for me this memory of my beloved father who admired him i need to go find a volume and i'll ask if there's a particular collection that you would recommend that i yeah, begin with yeah. if i am new to him okay how beautiful how beautiful well let that be a privilege that i have to um ship you uh, a book you know by tagore um oh. Thank My you. daughter in her first year in college also took a strong liking to him from one of the classes she took. And she ended up writing uh, an essay on a very pivotal moment in Indian history where he gives up his knighthood. You know, he was he was knighted by the British, but then he was unhappy with some of the things that they were doing during the Imperial Raj in India. Yeah. And so he gives up his knighthood, but he writes this very, you know, thoughtful letter as to why he's doing and what he's doing and all of that anyway so i think you might enjoy that too so i'll, I'll put both of those in your hands yes i love that thank yeah, you yeah, oh thank you're you so too. kind did they yeah. call him kid tagore kid tagore okay you know that's not i'm not as familiar with that no is okay. that right okay. yeah. i i have heard i thought i've heard people referring to him in sort of that nickname way um, I see a so yeah. well, I'll find out, but thank you so much. I'd love to read your daughter's essay. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, great. Wonderful. Thank you. And then if I were to quote one of our own from, um, you know, closer at home here in America, you have in your book, this very beautiful share. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Martin Luther King, right? Uh, it's not surprising that uh, both of us are, you know, huge fans of, of uh, this great man. Um, and yet it's funny, like even with all the study that I've done of him, I keep stumbling into new speeches, new talks, new writings, you know, uh, which are incredible gems, you know, incredible gems. And I see a little bit of that in, in your book, right? Because you, you have it right here in your turn this moment where he's quoting from the Bible, the greatest among you shall be your servants. And, and then he talks about how it, this means that everybody can be great. You know, you don't need to know Eisen, uh, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity or Plato or Aristotle. You don't need to know the second law of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. What uh, inspired you to share that, uh, share that passage from... Martin Luther King. Yeah, well, you're in the chapter th four, 
it's called Be Good. And it comes after chapter three, which is combating perfectionism. I'm trying to help readers appreciate the metrics by which they should measure their efforts and the quality of their life. So I'm saying forego perfectionism and the need to be the certain thing. And trust that if you work hard at developing your character, which is why the chapter is called Be Good, that you will get to the places you seek to get. Um, and so I had to figure out who am I going to draw upon as evidence? Who out there has lived such a life of grace and virtue, you know, such that I can, you know, from all the options, who am I going to choose? And this book strives to be quite pluralistic. I really do bring in stories uh, of people who are uh, Hindu and Muslim and Christian and atheist and Jewish. I bring in people who are working class and wealthy and in between and highly educated and hardly educated and straight and queer and all of the racial backgrounds and so on and so forth. So I'm trying to bring a diversity of viewpoints in so as to meet every reader and not appear to have written this book for a small slice of humans. So I chose, actually, Martin Luther King because he felt to me to be um, such an important person to remind us of in today's moment when his words are often parsed to mean something he did not mean. You know, there's such a movement on the right to say uh, Martin Luther King was about content of our character. Race doesn't matter. No, Martin Luther King knew race did matter and that we were not valued for the content of our character because of the racial hierarchy and classification system and caste system. Um, so in some ways, I'm trying to bring King back into this moment and remind us of what he said. But, you know, I also quote my mother from Yorkshire, England, who tells this lovely tale, reciting a story her her own mother told her, I think, of um, how a stranger is met um, by a uh, someone standing outside a city comes upon a stranger and he's trying to, you know, basically assess who this stranger is. And he's assessing the stranger's character, really, without the stranger knowing it. And so I quote my mother in here as a wise elder, and she's right there on the page alongside Martin Luther King, which is my way of saying I think we're all equal. Um, some of us uh, are more famous, but, you know, the wisdom lies in each one of us as as humble human beings. And so and I quote, I think, a professor at Yale, Emma Sapala, um, who's involved in the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research here at Stanford, uh, where she has, I think, a co-appointment. But she was trying to help her undergraduates better define success. Again, get out of this perfectionism and focus on what really mattered. And she said to me, I asked my undergraduates a question the other day. What are the characteristics of the most wonderful people you have met? The wonderful ones, she underscored. And her students said, loving, caring, and kind. And she said, so is that not what success is, y'all? To be a wonderful person who touches someone's life. So um, those were the three voices of wisdom I brought in, really undergraduates, knowing within themselves, loving, caring, and kindness is what matters. My mother's wisdom from coal mining country in Yorkshire, England, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Ah, how beautiful. How beautiful. Um, so, uh, you know, as we think about what kind of a, you know, blueprint to, you know, put out there for, um, you know, to be in service of, of youth seeking to move into adulthood in just the right way. I see a theme of uh, caring, kindness, you know, a service orientation towards the world. I see a theme of character, you know, really building and strengthening a character. And then, you know, I don't know if this, this third one is also part of what I'm hearing you say. I, I do see definitely elements of that in the book, which is 
the notion of being true to yourself, like discovering and learning uh, about, you know, what you are meant to manifest, which may or may not, you know, fall into any of the narrow and, you know, deeply grooved la lanes, you know, that the world has put out there, like you mentioned uh, we have and you know, in some of the more typical professions, right? It, it may or may not fall into those. That's right. And I think that's where my work as a dean working with undergraduates at a place like Stanford uh, really comes to the fore. I met so many, a heartbreaking number of highly intelligent, highly accomplished young people who felt that the well-worn paths of life were the right paths for them they had been told there are five possible careers or professions or maybe three. And so here they were full of possibility um, yet feeling as if they simply needed to march in line with into this well-worn groove. And I knew that there was comfort in these well-worn grooves because there are people in up ahead of you who are one and two and five and 20 and 50 years ahead of you doing this work. It's not lonely work necessarily. There are other people doing it, but if this isn't what your self, and I don't know whether to use the language of soul, spirit, mind, heart, yeah. some combination of the knowing we have of ourselves, if yeah. this isn't stuff you're good at, and can get better at so that it's work that puts you in flow, right? Where you're challenged mm -hmm. and drawn to learn more and work harder and keep going. If it's not going to put you in that flow, why are you going to spend a huge fraction of your life doing it in right. pursuit of what, if not strengthening your own capacities uh, because you're good at it and you love it, right? So you're motivated to go and bring that tool that is yourself in service of um, this society that we've got. So I was sad. And I had also made that mistake in my own life, Hitendra. I had gone mm -hmm. to law school to help humans. I wanted to be a public interest lawyer. I wanted to be a public defender. I wanted to be somebody who could use her rhetoric to uh, you know, convince a, a jury or a judge that this person deserves X, Y, and Z. I wanted to be a voice for the voiceless or the downtrodden or the mistreated. And yet... I went off to law school and was so insecure as a young brown-skinned woman of color, black and biracial, who was really in a period of self-loathing at that point around my ethnicity and ancestry because of all the messages that I had experienced in childhood and young adulthood. I was by that point at, say, 25, trying to perform to please mainstream white society. And so even though I had gone to law school to be a public interest lawyer, the, I knew that they, air quotes, whom I felt were judging me and whom I needed to please and appease, they seemed to value the corporate path, that well-worn, safe, lucrative path. So I took that path to be seen in their eyes as more worthy and found myself so lonely, not because there weren't people around me, but because I was at such a distance from my own self, meaning my values were to use a law degree to serve those in need. But here I was serving really only myself in acquiring the applause and the approval and the salary for having chosen this path. And um, so having learned that lesson and left that behind and pivoted toward a career where I could help young people make better choices in furtherance of their own values and voice, um, you know, I I was determined um, to deploy to take the lessons I had learned and try to uh, make to be of use to others um, in this regard as a dean.
Wow. You know, in so many ways, what you've just shared uh, mirrors the arc of my life, you know, uh, really? as well. Because I, I, you know, also got caught up a little bit in the trap, you know, uh, of going down the established, uh, well-worn paths. Uh, in my case, it was to go to a, you know, management consulting firm at McKinsey, then come to Silicon Valley to do a startup in the 99-2002 timeframe when Web 1.0 was being built. And these were very yeah. stimulating experiences, but for some reason, they were not really nurturing my soul as much. And so I was still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up because I, yeah. I, I felt drawn but not fully fully um, fused you know with, with those vocations and um, um, that said uh, I, I recently had on intersections um, my uh, former colleague uh, who had uh, been my engagement manager for some period of time during my time at uh, McKinsey um, and uh, he um, had impressed me when I was at McKinsey because he charted a fairly you know, independent uh, path for himself where he had a certain set of values about, you know, you know, kind of work-life balance and a few other such things. And I saw him, you know, put those into play in a way that actually, you know, generated a lot of respect for him, you know, within the firm. And um, he ended up being one of the youngest, like, elected partners, you know, of his era and time and went on still, since then to have a storied career and, you know, the world of business, being a senior vice president and, um, ultimately a CEO of a company. But then I received an email from him uh, a few years ago where he said, you know, my friends, I've finally decided to take the leap into what has long for me been a big draw, which is I'm going to rabbi school. I'm going to be a rabbi. And now he's the university chaplain um, <laughs> with the Boston Hillel, like at Boston University. You know, he's a sweet, sweet man. And I had wow. him on the show. <laughs> but, but the re reason I wanted to share that is because, you know, I just wonder, Julie, that for those who are going into these, you know, more established professions, you know, if you think about it, right, whether it's investment banking or consulting or entrepreneurship or what have you, I wonder if even for them, one can, you know, in, invite them to recognize that there is a way to go into these professions and to play that game in a way that might sanctify these professions more than has been done in the past, to see them as vehicles for more than just the material advancement of your own self or organization into some form of service. Because, you know, there are noble and important services that these professions offer to the world. And I wonder if we could, like, you know, in, inspire the next generation to go into these professions with fresh eyes, fresh wisdom, fresh ethos, you know, and, and who knows, you know, what, what can yeah. happen to beautify them. Well, I don't know what you think. I love that. First of all, yes. And <laughs> yes, um, let us ensure, let us, let us become a, a community, a society where those who pursue those paths have embedded in their why uh, the social impact, you know, let us um, not be simply about our own personal gain or filling our own pockets and that of our family and descendants, but, you know, let us use these important professions to actually wreak profound, radical, transformative good at a societal level. Let's use these big levers and pull them uh, to benefit society rather than a handful of already pretty privileged people. But I also want to say, that I don't want to come across as saying these well-worn paths are always problematic, always bad places to go. I'm not knocking these professions at all. Right. What I'm saying to individuals in my work, as I did as a dean, was ask yourself 
is this what I think I'm good at? And is this what I think I love? And if the answer is yes, then go in that direction. If you want to be right. a venture capitalist and you can describe why you love it and why you're good at it and why you're drawn to it, right? More power to you. My message mm -hmm. is simply don't go there because you feel you air quotes should and don't really have the option to do anything else, right? Yeah. Don't go there because everybody in your eyes is doing that because you will feel terribly disassociated from your own self, right? So there's a right reason to do it. As I tell people, when young people say, oh, I noticed you went to law school, you know, what's your advice? I say, if you're considering law school, you know, articulate to yourself why, why it is that you want that degree. What is it you intend to do with it? And continually remind yourself of that along the way so that you don't get jostled out of your own reason for doing it in the first place, which is what happened to me. There are very valid reasons to pursue these paths. My point is simply, is this the right path for you? Yeah, yeah. Powerful, powerful stuff. So um, there are two barriers I see there for, you know, a young, young, talented mind kind of just trying to make their way through the first stages of life, fame and fortune, the hunger for fame and fortune. The fame part is like, I want to be popular. I want to be liked. I want to be respected by the world. And, you know, these seem to be the professions or the organizations that I need to be affiliated with in order to kind of like have that stature, that social stature. Mm -hmm. And then the fortune part is like, I, I want to make good money because I, I, I want to live a good life. And in your, in your teaching, in, in your, um, you know, turn from, um, you know, helping support parents and thinking with, you know, a fresh lens on how to develop the next generation well, which is, uh, I know, an arena that you have done some beautiful work in, you know, that was the subject of your first book and your TED talk, more recently to turning more directly to the youth and saying, like, how do you mature into adulthood, the right kind of adulthood, not the formulaic kind of adulthood? Um, what prescriptions or guidance you have around, you know, I don't know, like a theme of simplicity in life, you know, the idea of like, if you, if you tame your, you know, take tame some of these like material hungers and these like social fame hungers, you free yourself to be the most authentic version of who you are. Uh, you know, I, I know that's part of generally your story, but could you give a couple of just like suggestions yeah. or thoughts on that? Well, I, th I think I tend to frame it uh, differently. I would say the, I know I live in Silicon Valley, which means my world is uh, full of people who are incredibly wealthy. There is a lot of wealth concentrated here. And I know mm -hmm. some of those people Right. and some subset of them are so miserable. They have achieved all the money. There is not much more money one could have. And yet, their marriages are terrible. Their interpersonal relationships are not good. Um, they're unhappy. And that is, for me, proof that it ain't about having all the money. You said good money, good life. And I would interrupt those, right? Good money does not equal good life. Research shows that humans need in this nation currently about $75,000 a year um, in order for more money, like more money increases happiness up to $75,000 a year as a, right. But beyond that, more money doesn't increase your happiness. It seems to be, we need to get to a place where we can pay our rent. We can pay for food, you know, decent, basic quality of life. And then more money doesn't make us happier. And so, uh, that is an important lesson. It sort of begs the question, how much money do you think you need? There are valuable concerns. You know, well, I want to be able to pay for my retirement. I want to be sure I'm okay if I have a health crisis. I want to put my kids through college. I want to give back to my parents, right? There are very valid ways in which 
um, we want to spend our money, but the accumulation of money to get to be like Jeff Bezos, who says, I have some, I, I don't even know what to do with my money. You know, that's, that's a failure. And um, particularly when there's so much need around us. So I try to subvert the narrative of money equals the good life and say like, yeah, you need a, you need some money in order to just make it. But beyond that, it's the quality of our interpersonal relationships. It's, is my work giving me a sense of purpose? You know, is what I do mattering somewhere and to me, right? That's success. So it comes down to then ego, right? The sort of social status, like we want to be able to show up at the golf course or the, or the uh, soul cycle or the coffee clutch and brag about this and that. Come on. The more we mature as beings, the more we know, I don't need to prove myself to anyone. But I realize that's a function of age and stage, that the wisdom comes through time. And I would love your thoughts on how can we infuse these age-acquired wisdoms in the young, right? How do we help a 16-year-old understand that the purpose of life is to serve and that such reward will be reaped to the self by knowing I am of service to others? How can we reframe the narratives kids are getting so it, they come out of high school, out into the world wanting these things rather than discovering that wisdom later in life, perhaps only after having made choices they regret? Yeah, no, it's a beautiful uh, question. I, I, I wouldn't claim in any way to have uh, even a fraction of the expertise you've developed over the years in, in this uh, in this regard. I mean, my my audiences have been more in their late twenties to you know in fifties and beyond uh, with the uh, MBAs and executive populations. That said, as I was mentioning to you um, at some stage earlier, uh, you know, I'm very drawn to the idea of, you know, being of service to to the youth. And uh, there's a youth change maker fellowship, et cetera, that we're launching, which is going to be a vehicle through which I'm going to be a student, you know, of the youth and and learn from them and also learn, learn how to be a better support to them. But one idea that is coming to my mind, since you have raised that as a question is um, one thing I've found in, in just you know, to the one data point of raising my daughter is if we can give our children or uh, whoever it is that we are serving and supporting in the youth an experience of how just simple things in life can be so fulfilling and rewarding. Like, you know, um, in her case, just um, creative expression in, in some, art, you know, form of art, whether it's poetry or, or, or just, you know, uh, visual arts or um, communion with nature you know go, go, you know we, we we went and spent some time um in, in Botswana on a retreat where there was literally nothing except just nature and you in communion and it was like probably like the most powerful soul-stirring experience that we've had as a family you know and just just to be there in nature and unspoiled right and two things come to mind three things one I've been to Botswana and so I I can visualize this beautiful wow. country yeah. as you say it two um there are so many parents who'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now they need to do their AP exam so they can get into the right college and go be an investment banker. Right. So a lot of us parents think like that's fine for sort of like a summertime experience, but it's not going to be what my kid does because right. I need my, you know, I think success is this. Um, and the third thing I want to say is my daughter is an artist, Hitendra. And for the, she's 20, like right. yours. And yeah, nice. Um, she's in college and mm -hmm. we're out here. I raised her in the shadow of Stanford where I worked. She went to nursery school at Stanford's nursery school where they told me when she was four that they were so um, taken by her artwork that whatever paintings, watercolor she was doing 
were really at another level. And I mean this in all seriousness. They were telling, they pulled me aside and said, we don't want to just pack up this artwork and stick it in her bag. We want to draw your attention to the fact that, look, we've been teaching three to five-year-olds for decades. And we know what, you know, it is to have an artist capability. Your daughter has it. Oh, and I'm telling you this to say, you know, they basically shared, you know, this is a replica of my daughter's watercolor just to, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's just art. That's yeah. not going to get her into Stanford. That was my mentality toward mm. my own child yeah. when she was coming up. And it was because at the same time, I was a dean sitting in office hours, meeting with students who wanted to ask me, what should I do with my life? What should I do for career, for my major, for my graduates? And I never gave yeah. them answers. I would, of course, I don't have answers to someone else's big life questions, but I would ask them questions to open up themselves to themselves. What are you good at? What do you love? What do you know of yourself so far? And I realized with such empathy for other people's kids in my office, I was failing to see my own kid. And I came home from a really, really clarifying office hours one Friday and realized my daughter's an artist. And if I don't get right with myself about what I think I need her to be or what I think success is or what's important, I will fail to see her. And that may damage her. And one day she will be having to unpack why didn't my parents accept me for who I was. And so having traveled that journey painfully mm -hmm. in my own family to be an expert and yet so inexpert at loving my children for who they actually are. I mean, to be frank, I have worked on that. I have grown to be the mom who can say my daughter Avery is an artist and she is a 20 year old junior at university. And she's decided to major in her own mashup major of cultural anthropology and dance. She is a dancer. She is a choreographer. She is getting paid internships in the arts. And I'm no longer that parent who's going, yeah, but you know, how are you going to afford a life? I'm saying I'm proud of you. I'm impressed. You know, I'm happy for you. I know it's on her to figure out the question of where can I afford to live? What am I getting right? She's going to figure that out as people who pursue the arts do. It's not my job to say, no, you can't don't do that. Right. I'm finally that mom who is seeing my daughter for who she is. And she is blowing my mind. Oh, wow. That is so beautiful. So soul stirring. And, um, just a singular, most profound lesson for parenting, right? Yeah. Uh, the capacity to both serve and support, but with a certain non-attachment and a celebration right. of whatever is unfolding in front of you, which you are you know, not in a position to author, but you're in a position to really celebrate and discover and observe from the outside, right? right. How beautiful, how beautiful. I am, you know, I, I'm uh, keen to bring up one last topic for us to talk about um, before we wrap up. And that's about your very, you know, heartfelt work around uh, celebrating identity and inclusion in, in the world. Um, can we, can we maybe move into that for a few minutes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for I mean, the opportunity. Sure. Sure. I mean, obviously, you know, you've already talked a little bit about how yeah. it has been a part of your life journey from a very, you know, inception stage. Right. Um, I also was very struck that in your book, you have, in addition to, you know, the um, usual kind of, you know, conversation about the book itself, uh, you know, the acknowledgements and things. If I recall, wasn't there a place here? There it is. Yeah. yeah. 
it, you know, you call it a commitment to inclusion, um, you know, and, and you, you have a statement there, which is about two pages long, where you're just acknowledging how you have taken a very conscious turn to, in this book, make sure that, um, you know, nobody's excluded, you know, in the stories you tell and the examples you give. Thanks for pointing that out and noticing if anyone listening is interested, it's you can go to my website and we're in my books and this book that the, the commitment to inclusion is linked as a PDF. Look, um, Hitendra, this is my own subversive way to upend American publishing or at least self-help nonfiction publishing too often books. And look, I'm surrounded by books <laughs> too often authors make the mistake of writing a nonfiction self-help book um, or business practices book, uh, any book at, at aiming to give advice to humans. Too often, authors draw their examples from a very narrow swath of the human community, often straight, white, uh, educated, middle-class people, okay? Well, I'm black and biracial. I also identify as queer and bisexual. I am very privileged. I'm highly educated. I'm privileged in a lot of ways. But I am tired of reading books that only give me examples from one narrow swath of life. I'm tired of reading a book that's about how boys grow up and that uh, talks about boys and guns and violence and doesn't acknowledge that some boys are raised in communities where guns are prevalent, whether it's um, a hunting community uh, or an urban community, right? It was clearly written about suburban boys. And I said to the author, you need to be inclusive of all boys here. And she's like, well, I'm really writing for everybody. I'm like, no, you're not actually. You're only writing for this narrow swath here in the suburbs. So I have been that reader who felt alienated by the narrative. And I do not want to be a writer who alienates my goal with this book, which is about a phase of life we all enter if we survive childhood and we're in until we die. That's what adulting is, like just being an adult, right? I wanted to offer advice to all. And I had to go to some lengths to include voices beyond mine because only, I'm only a data set of one. I wanted to try to bring in a panoply of humans who've lived all different life experiences and have different identities so that readers were more likely to feel seen on the page, but also to demonstrate, look how different we are. And yet look what we all have in common. That's another sort of subversive message of this book in this Black Lives Matter imperative moment. It's look, we're all the same. We all want to be treated with dignity and kindness. We all yearn. We all hunger. We all want love. We all, you know, want to make something of our lives. Like we're different and yet we're the same. And in telling these different, in bringing these different narratives on the page, can I help you see how much you, as a person who's straight, white, and male have in common with this queer person over here, or this, if you're a Christian, look how much you have in common with this Muslim lady who fled Uganda. You know, I'm trying to knit us together, bringing the differences in to show, and yet look how similar we are. And the last thing I want to say is you're, you're reminding me that I'm about to head into a very privileged environment. I've been invited by Ted. You know that I've done a TED talk and Ted has invited me this year back to its conference to be a speaker ambassador, which means to be a, a seasoned speaker who right. is helping a brand new speaker with their jitters and questions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And we had a preparation call for all the speaker ambassadors. 
And a brown skinned man from Brazil said, mm. you know, I've been an ambassador before and the person I was meant to support treated me like I was his helper. Like he kept asking me to go get food every time there was, he was like, can you get me some food? Can you get me some food? And, you know, and he then finished, you know, making that statement and the Ted people were like, Hmm. And I jumped in and said, let me underscore that experience. I haven't had it at Ted, but I right. have had the experience of being in a position of, you know, I was assistant to the president at Stanford, which does not mean his executive assistant. It was, you know, sort of a, chief mm -hmm. of staff or, you know, like a senior person. And somebody came, a white woman came in for an important event. I was standing there to say hello. And she handed me her coat oh, and didn't even make yeah. eye contact. And that was my second day on the job. And these wow. things don't happen typically to men. They don't happen to white men. And I said, so Ted, it's incumbent upon you when you assign the role of ambassador and you invite people to have one of us, be sure that you frame for them who right. we are, right? Yeah, because yeah. there are, right? They will see us through the lens of their own biases, which are often unexamined, right? They mm. think, oh, there's this brown woman who's here to help me go get my food, right? No, no, no. I'm not here to get your food. I might mm -hmm. bring you a glass of water if you're thirsty. I'll be happy to serve, right? Yes. But, but that is different than you're treating me as if I'm in a subordinate role. So yeah. these, these are the moments that we are in as we elevate everybody to a place of all lives mattering, which of course, historically, they have not. We have to look at the ways in which we behave as if all lives are not equal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a rich topic, and I, I'm, I'm really um, in a in a good way stirred and uh, you know thought provoked, you know, by some of the things that you're sharing. And I want to go back and uh, assimilate them more. I, I'm just delighted that you're, um, you know, in such an articulate and thoughtful way, really trying to kind of like ho hold up this uh, flag for making sure that all lives matter, making sure that uh, those stories and those communities that have not in the past been really recognized, uh, you know, are, are brought to brought to surface and supported and celebrated, you know, for all the potential and the beauty and the, because it adds so much richness to life, so much color really to the world, not to see it just through one lens, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Julie. It's been a real pleasure to have you with us. What do you see as your, just as a, in a closing <laughs> remark, what do you see as your big quest you know in the in the next few years what is it that you're most keen to accomplish and support well hitendra that feels like the obvious final question and yet i don't have a clear answer here's why i'm in my third career i was a lawyer i was a university administrator now i'm a writer and i get to speak about my writing and i love that work i have more books in me i've written three um but i'm 54 and so I'm asking myself with an eye towards 65 and 70, God willing, I make it that far healthy. What is it I want to do next? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to continue to write books out into the forever or if I want to pivot and maybe uh, take on a more traditional job again. I'm not sure. I'm curious. Um, and right now I'm in that space of curiosity. I love helping humans. I'm interested in every human story and in helping humans thrive. And that will always be my why. So whatever ensues next, it will be in furtherance of that. Ah, oh, yeah, that's beautiful. I'm also, um, you know, grateful that you're comfortable sharing a certain lack of definition at this stage as things evolve for you to get to get to the next uh, next level in what has been already such a luminous career. And I wish you 
a long life uh, with, with great health all the way through because, um, you know, you have such beautiful work still to do in the years and decades ahead. Um, and I'm also reminded, um, you know, of, you know, I'm sure you, you've, you've heard this, uh, you know, an excerpt from Walt Whitman's poem because it is a popular line out there. But I don't know, it, it's something that I feel uh, connects so well with who you are. You know, that, that one famous line from him, what I contain multitudes. You know, I see that uh, so much in mm. uh, both your, you know, just a sense of connection and identity with so many different, you know, aspects of, uh, you know, the human condition as well as in the ideas and thoughts you express. So thank you so much for bringing such a richness of spirit to our audience here. Well, I want to thank you and all who made this happen, but also I want to acknowledge your listeners who have spent considerable time with us, your audience, whatever it was about what... Hitendra and I discussed today that resonated with you, listener, take that forward. Be curious. Why was it that that resonated? Why was it that it connected with you or bothered you? What did it tap or trigger in you? That's an opportunity for further growth and learning for you, listener. And um, I'm excited for you. What a beautiful thoughts. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank All you. the best to you. Let's take a couple of minutes to draw out the key lessons we can take from this conversation with Julie. She was such a spirited and heartfelt presence here in our midst. And the first thing we spoke about is the mixed blessing that higher education provides to us today. On the one hand, they have tremendous research. They have such great offerings here for our undergraduate and our youth. And yet, on the other hand, there is one questing for character building that is not done full justice to. And there's this Gallup poll she spoke about where you know, what it showed is that lifelong success comes in part from the opportunity to have at a certain critical age of our life, the right mentoring, the right caring, the right listening and engagement from, from the right people. And you know, that is something that we can, we can all work towards helping advance and improve our you know, institutions of higher learning around. We spoke about the power and importance of character building, going beyond just the perfectionist quest for getting all the right medals and all the right attainments on the outside to really just sculpting our character to pausing and asking ourselves, what is, you know, what is the world going to say about me at the time I die, if this is the way I keep living my life? But also, how am I going to feel about my life in that moment when I die? Julie spoke so articulately about that power of, you know, recognizing your own responsibility to be feeling and saying and thinking the right things about yourself. She says, when I'm not combating some insecurity within me that's making me afraid or angry, then I can show up with other human beings and you know, be in some ways more what they need from me in that moment. So much power in that. There was one interesting moment in the conversation where I would love to have Julie back to fully do justice and unpack you know, all the possibilities there. You know, we were speaking a little bit about you know, whether everything happens for a reason. And she described that moment where that doctor got cured of Ebola, even though there were so many other people suffering from Ebola. And she, she talked about how he thanked God and how she just felt like that was a little bit sort of self-centered and selfish. I would have loved to just unpack that a little bit more with Julie, because, um, you know, this question about, you know, is there a higher force? Is there a divine and benign grace that is out there? And if so, then why is it sometimes that, you know, bad things happen to people? Why is it sometimes that bad things happen to good people and sometimes good things happen to bad people. I think, you know, those are profound questions, you know, that cut to the very foundation of our personal, you know, kind of curiosity and our sense of, you know, just 
yeah, just meaning, you know, about about the world and about life and whether or not there is the presence of a higher force. And one of the things I would have liked to test with her is that, you know, for this doctor to have thanked God, you know, maybe that was his his faith. Maybe that is how he lived, that he just wanted to thank God, you know, for, for the blessings he had in his life. And for me, what would have been a really powerful test there for this doctor is, well, what if he has some suffering in his life? In that moment, what is his relationship with God? And how does he feel about God's blessings in his life when he's actually going through some suffering? And so anyway, that's a unfinished thread in the conversation with Julie that I look forward to having a moment with her, perhaps offline or online and reporting back to you at some point. We talked then about love and kindness and what a beautiful data point she gave us about Emma Sapella, who's a professor at Yale. And she, she talks about how she asks her undergraduates, you know, this question, you know, what are the characteristics of the most wonderful people you've met? And, you know, the students underscore loving, caring and kind. And then she asked them, well, so... Is that not how you define success? And it is such a beautiful realization that if those are the kinds of people that we deeply value in life, then isn't that the way we should be thinking about defining success? You know, Julie had such an articulate and passionate view as she has been advising these freshmen at Stanford about, you know, don't just get stuck in the well-worn, as she says, paths of life. Because, yes, yeah, some of those careers, you know, whether it's in consulting or investment banking or venture capital, what have you, are, are great. But there is just so much more to the world as well, especially if you really want to truly serve the world and have impact. And we spoke about then how you can have that impact also within these professions. And she mentioned so thoughtfully, let us use these important professions to wreck profound, radical, transformative good at a societal level. Let's use these big levers and pull them to benefit society rather than having just a handful of you know, already privileged people. You know, I thought that was beautiful. A, a call to change-making for any or all of us. We learned also from this conversation, Judy, about how being able to focus on enjoying some of the simple things in life can help us tame our hungers and ultimately get us to realize the tangibility of this scientific proof point at this point we have that at some point, you know, after you've like say in America achieved a salary level of somewhere in the 75 to hundred thousand dollars, you don't really become happier just by earning more money. And therefore you could turn your attention to following your heart, you know, really connecting with your passions, doing something in the service of. And then finally, as we also think ourselves in terms of the uh, caregiving and mentoring and nurturing responsibilities we have for others, including in particular our own children. You know, Julie's point there, and you know, described so so thoughtfully and sensitively through her own grappling and the conversation she had about her daughter. Right, is uh, to see our children for who they are, not necessarily for who we want them to be, but for who they are. And in that moment, when she realized, accepted, ultimately embraced her daughter's, you know. Um, vocational pursuits and interests around dancing and choreography that you you just surrender to whatever it is in that life that is unfolding magically in front of you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Julie just as much as I have and carrying many of these kinds of tangible learnings or perhaps even more. Write and connect and talk with us from time to time so we can also learn and tune in to how you're being stirred and what else you're looking for. Thank you and I look forward to having you in another episode of Intersections soon.